Welcome to another edition of Bridging the Gap. And in this week's episode, I'm honored to have Zachary Bauk of Denver Wealth Management on the episode. Zachary is a recent inductee or honoree of the Investment News 40 Under 40. And we have an amazing conversation. We start out by talking about long distance running. And then we talk about AI. We dive deep into how is AI going to impact this industry. A great conversation where he actually flips the script and starts asking me questions. And of course, I like to talk and I answered them. And we talk about Zachary's path to where he is today, being a co-founder of Denver Wealth Management, and talks about what he learned early on about some of those firms that just gave this industry a bad name and some of the lessons that he learned. Every piece of this episode is interesting and exciting, and you're going to find something to take away. Now, let's turn it over to my conversation with Zachary Bauk. This is Bridging the Gap with your host, Matt Reiner. Zachary Bauk from Denver. How you doing, man? Thanks for joining us here on Bridging the Gap. You having a, uh, a great day, a great week. How's everything going with you? Man, I'm having a great day and a great week. I'm training like a maniac for the Boston Marathon. So just got back from my long run for the day. So feeling good. Good for you. The Boston Marathon, man. Have, have you run it before or is this your first time going after it? First time going after it. So I'm at, I'm at the point where I'm like eight weeks out and starting to put in the serious miles. So Kind of gets painful, and then you get to take a little break before the marathon. But feeling good about it. What holiday is it on? It's usually on a Monday, right? Up in the yeah, Boston. it's on a you know COVID messed it up like it messed up everything. But this year it's on October 11th. So okay. yeah, Monday, October 11th. Gosh, so I don't envy you at all, but I I do envy when you finish because it's going to be such an amazing milestone to hit. I mean, you're a marathon runner through and through. Have you done any Ironmans, triathlons, anything of that nature? Or you just do on the running, focus on the marathon side. I've done two ultra ultra marathons, which were like 33, 34 miles. I never planned on running a, a pavement marathon just because I like running on dirt. Living in the Colorado foothills makes it easy to go run on trails. But uh, I got an invite to the Boston Marathon through John Hancock, which was awesome. I couldn't turn it down. And it just so happens the, the 40 under 40 thing is like the next day. So as long as I'm on the East Coast, it, you can kind of put it all together. I love that. I love that. And so just out of curiosity, I've always been intrigued by long, long runners, you know, that, or that run long distances. I mean, do you listen to music? Like what goes on? That's a long time to be running. I get exhausted after about a mile and a half. What keeps you going running that way? Yeah, that's actually a really a fun, interesting question. I think because when I started running, I would listen to music the whole time. And then I got sick of listening to music. So I started listening to a lot of podcasts then after a while, I mean, probably like a year into running, I just took out the headphones and I never put them back in. You just let your mind wander. And it, you know, sometimes you have hard days where you think of dark, scary things the whole time. And some days you have easy days where you just have these kind of fun, wistful thoughts. And, and some days you just forget you're running and it's over before you even noticed. It just so happens where I live in Golden, Colorado, the mountain I run on used to be called Rattlesnake Mountain. Now they, they renamed it because that wasn't very good for, for marketing, but like People, you're not supposed to wear headphones just because there's so many snakes on the trails that you want to hear them rattling at you. So that's the, that's the further incentive to not use headphones. But yeah, and usually that's also I just an incentive kind of, to run faster. Yeah, that's right. If they come after you, so uh, <laughs> now I just gen- generally let my mind wander, and it's like a, it's a good a good therapeutic session every day. I love that. I love that. Well, I, I wish you the best of luck in the Boston Marathon. I'm excited to hear about it at the uh, the event for the 40 under 40. And, and congratulations, man. It's such an honor to uh, to receive that. I know that you know it's it's something of at least on on my side that was kind of unexpected. So congratulations to you. I, I just love to to hear what it means to you to be recognized by Investment News for 40 under 40. 
Yeah, it, it meant it meant the world to me. I was so I do a podcast, and that's one of the reasons I I got top forty under forty is because of our podcast, which is called Mind of a Millionaire, and it's it's definitely geared towards like the retail person or like the, the end client. And when I got the award, I did a podcast, and of course, you're not allowed to tell anybody for like two months. But I realized it was only the second award I had ever received. I the only other award I had ever received was like the it was called the Sophomore Excellence in Band in high school. So, <laughs> you know, I, I've won like softball tournaments and I've won like poker tournaments, but as just going through life, you know, you don't get a lot of recognition, even if you're good at your job or not good at your job. It's just not, there's not like that many awards. We don't have like the golden globes where you just get recognized every year, you know? So it was really cool after I started in 2008. So 13 years in the industry, it meant the world to me for someone to say like, Hey, this company that you co-founded, has grown not not only just in the size of the business, but in the reach that you have with consumers that we just basically want to recognize your work. And I thought I just it meant so much to me. And I was I was riding high for about three weeks on that. It was a lot of fun. And I have to give a shout out if, if you haven't followed Zach on LinkedIn, go check him out and follow him and, and take a take a look at the post that he put out when the news came out about investment news. I thought it was just one of the most just genuine posts that I've I've seen in a long while. Because, you know, as you mentioned in there, right, and, and I've mentioned it to a lot of people that I've talked to, this award is not just an award of one person, right? So many people help you get there, the clients, the team, mentors, and everything of that nature. And so I, I just give you a major shout out. That was an awesome, genuine post that you did on LinkedIn there. Oh, thank you. You know, I, I was almost embarrassed when I got the award because it was like, Zach is the top 40 under 40. <laughs> and I was like, oh my God, you you guys have no idea. Like, if Caitlin doesn't schedule my meetings, if Dan doesn't do my trades, if Blair, my business partner, he's like, we call him the governor or the mayor, you know, because he's out there just glad handing and getting new clients. If it wasn't for those guys, I wouldn't be anywhere near where I am today. So I've never felt like that before. Cause you usually you think if you get an award, you're just going to puff up your chest and say like, I did this. I'm awesome. And my, my, re <laughs> my reaction was the exact opposite. Like, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm embarrassed. Like I, this isn't the Zach show. This is the the Denver Wealth Management Show. So I just had to make sure everybody knew that. But I, yeah, it's fun. And nobody gets here without a team to get to like the level that all these top 40 under 40 advisors are at. There's no solo practitioners in that bunch. It's, it's kind of like uh, you feel a little bit guilty that you're the one that's getting recognized when you know how many other people have a hand in the, uh, in the success that you're able to have. And I think that you know, I've talked to, been fortunate enough to talk to and, and read about a lot of successful entrepreneurs. And I think that they all feel that same way. They never feel like they're smart enough to have gotten to where they are. They just feel like they've worked hard. They got lucky. They put in the work. They feel like they deserve it, but they always feel like they're like, I'm not really the smartest guy in the world. I just, you know, I guess it just happened. And I think that it's somewhat of how I felt with this award was, gosh, I don't know if I'm the one that deserves it right now. I mean, I don't know if I, you know, I think I've done a good bit, but I don't know if I've done a lot that much. And it just shows that I think it, we all are a little bit harder on ourselves and look at ourselves in a little bit of a different light than how the world does. And I think we all just need to appreciate the impact that we all are having together in the industry and the world as a whole. We always have an intern at all times. We have an intern and we always try and remind them that in this, in, in this uniquely in like the financial services industry, it's not the smartest people who are the most, the most successful. And it, it pains that 4.0 student who's a freshman and they're out there like getting an internship their freshman summer. It's not necessarily the smartest people. We always say it boils down to two things. People like you and people trust you. 
And if you are at least somewhat competent in your world of financial planning, it kind of doesn't matter if you do individual stocks or you're like insurance based or you're, you know, model based. You know, we happen to do a lot of ETFs and mutual funds. It doesn't really matter how great your portfolios are. They need to like you and they need to trust you. And a lot of times it's the guys who, you know, I wasn't part of a frat house, but it's the guys who know how to build those connections, like the frat boys or the girls who are in the sororities. Like it's, it's those type of people who know how to build that trust and be likable. And in some ways, it's not fair if you're the 4.0 student and the 3.0 frat boy is making double your income, but it happens to be the reality. <laughs> it's like the reality of our business. And it's, it can be a hard lesson to learn, but everybody learns it eventually. I mean, that's so true. I, I'm, we have a book coming out called Dr. Cole Cash. We'll see you now. It's a, nice, it's a business fable all about Dr. Cash, who's a psychologist for financial advisors. And the whole theme, it's a four-part series. The first book is out and we have three more coming out, but it's all about the idea that why the financial advisor is never going away. And when you look at why the financial advisor is never going away, it's not because we're better at picking stocks or we're smart at predicting the economy. It's because we're humans. We create human relationships. We build trust. People like us and they need someone to help them navigate their journey. And I think that that's you know, the nature of success. It's all the foundation of trust. And I was actually having a conversation with a coworker of mine today about a video series we're going to start doing that's all built on why do people trust you and how to get hmm. people to trust you, right? Because that's what this is all about as everybody's focusing on you know, studying the fundamentals, which you need to know, but it all hinges on trust. Like you said, I think that that's so, I mean, silent point right there. That's super interesting. I've, I've actually never thought about what inputs create the output trust. And I'd be really interested to hear what that was about. And also like the other reason that's interesting too, is because in our industry, you know, robo advisors were like the hot thing maybe three, four years ago. So you got Wealthfront and Betterment and and so every broker dealer and every RIA, LPL, Schwab, TD Ameritrade, I mean, all of them, they, they all rolled out their robo-advisor. Like, oh, we have a robo-advisor too. And I don't know exactly how that's turned out. Like, I can't say that I know the numbers, but you don't hear about robo-advisors at all anymore. Like, sure, Wealthfront, I think, has got $10 billion and Betterment's in the billions. And there's a place for those in the market. But financial advisors have trillions and trillions of dollars. And it's, you know, one thing we also, we talk about in this industry is that human contact is not scalable. You know, maybe it's scalable to a certain extent, like maybe Matt, you can have 300 households when the last generation could only have 200 households, but ultimately it's that human connection that is keeping this business afloat. And I'm, I'm interested in, you said financial advisors are never going away. I, I think about that often. Like, are we the horse and buggies that are eventually are going to get AI'd out of the industry? So you don't think that's going to happen? Yeah. I mean, that's an interesting topic, something I'm passionate about. I, I, I'm a huge fan of AI. I'm actually a huge fan of virtual reality. I think that they're both going to play a really integral part into the future of our, of our space with AI and VR helping us with training and helping people visualize the future. I think that the problem with AI is that it cannot get the EQ and the emotional connection that is needed to help someone walk off the ledge. And I think what AI allows for is allows for us to do less of the menial mundane stuff, but more of the emotional connection stuff, which is so necessary in a relationship. And I just don't know if AI and a bot can build the trust 
it can execute on trust or execute on what's needed to do trust, but just can't build that natural bond that's needed that I can look at you and see how you're reacting to something that I'm saying and then change my conversation a little bit and then take all these inputs that are going on in my head. I just don't see AI getting to that point. And a lot of people say that it will. I just don't know if people will ever trust it that way that they do with a, a, human, a human relationship side of it. Yeah. So someone said it was like flying on an airplane is, is like the, the human pilots take off and the human pilots land and the pilots are there in case of an emergency. In fact, we have a backup pilot in case of an emergency, but ultimately it's computers that are running like 99% of the flight. Maybe wouldn't be surprised to see financial advice go that way where you do have the robo advisors that do 99% of the work, but there's always a human kind of giving the final say, but that, you know, that kind of leads back to the, Hey, you're just trying to scale the efficiency of humans, but you're not eliminating humans. I will also say that Vanguard, I don't know if you're a big Vanguard fan or not a big Vanguard fan, but we have gotten some of our largest clients from the Vanguard institutional services. And sure. Our Vanguard is obviously killing it in the asset management game. And they have a ton of individual clients and they're trying to find a way to take financial advice down to 0.5 0.5 or 0.35 basis points. But ultimately their their model of having someone sitting in the office giving you vague suggestions instead of actually implementing your advice, this just doesn't seem like what a lot of people want. Like maybe when you're opening your first Roth IRA, you can handle that. But if you're retiring with two and a half million dollars, I think that probably freaks people out that they don't actually know the person who's dishing out this advice. Yeah. And I think that the the analogy about the planes is really good. I, I think that it's a matter of, and you know it really well, it, it's people are emotional. And when it comes to money, the emotional the emotion accelerates and, and causes people to make silly decisions. And it's really hard for, I think, to create an algorithm for all the different emotional aspects and how every person deals with an emotional issue. And I think that that's where the human comes in, because I think the human has to interpret what the AI outputs. I do believe that the future is that more advisors will be able to handle more households, which I think is great for the greater good of people. Because I do think that we are valuable because of the behavioral psychology aspect of it. And I do think that more advisors that come into the space are going to have more of a psychology background because it's more of mm. how do you handle them through the journey? Because like doing a, a crunching of numbers on a Monte Carlo analysis or predicting you know where the markets are going can be done by AI. But what does that mean to you, Zachary? And then to me, Matt, and to Joe Smith over here, it can all mean different things. And how do they want to interpret it? Some want it visual, some want it written out, some want it talked out, right? And, and I think that that's where the human element comes because- I just don't see us being friends with robots. Maybe in my son's lifetime, but maybe probably not my lifetime. I don't think. <laughs> yeah, I don't think. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know about friends with robots. That's a. I don't know. You see those Boston Dynamic videos. You kind of fall in love with those dogs by the end. They yeah. seem so. They seem so <laughs> friendly. But I, I was just thinking of the math. Like so now I've been through two crises. I've been through two thousand and eight. And man, I was like a first year advisor. So I, I didn't time, have the, right? yeah, I didn't have the pleasure of actually it turned out to be good timing because I would call people and they would say, Well, my advisor hasn't called me in three months and I, you know, this is when I need to talk to somebody. So actually the timing worked out pretty good because I didn't have a huge book of business to lose 50% of the value. And it also happens that all the money I invested that first year of 2008, <laughs> I looked like a genius for the next 10 years because <laughs> buy and hold, baby. Yeah. Um, but now I've been through two of those. And you know, our group, Denver Wealth Management, we have like 590 households. And I, I probably had, like in aggregate, we probably had 10 people who called us in the 
the worst, you know, March 18th, 2020 and said, Zach, this is my life savings. It's all got to come out. They're t- the economy shut down. Half the population of the world is going to die. But our clients were saying, what, what good are these investments if the world population cuts in half? And that's where all of a sudden I can't see the AI convincing someone. The death rate is only 0.01%. Therefore, the US population will not be decimated. But that, that's where you, know, you really make your money. And I would tell them you know, the, these really hard, hard conversations like, hey, man, you've been paying me 1% a year for seven years. And sure, we've been getting a nice return. But this is when I actually earn all my money. Like, mm-hmm. you know, you've paid me 70,000 a year for the last seven years or 70,000 total, 10,000 a year. I'm about to earn all of it because I'm not going to let you sell out right now unless you take your money and move it to the broker down the street who wants to trade the market. And I don't know how AI would ever do that. I, I mean, I, I am so in your camp with that. I, I agree with that. And I think that there's a lot of smart people at MIT and, you know, up in Silicon Valley that think that they could get that done. But I just don't think that they've sat in the seat when a widow loses her husband and wants to come in and talk about what does it mean to me and how do I get my portfolio? How am I going to live and have those conversations? I don't know if they're going to be able to have those conversations, right? They'll be able to regurgitate out the information. And we have to always remember, and how I always look at it is, we shouldn't be afraid of computers. We should we should embrace them to work with us. And computers are really good at crunching numbers very quickly, looking at a ton of different metrics and providing outputs, but they just don't know how to necessarily relate that. And that's where the human comes into play. And I, I think that that's where the, the major potential is for us. But I do think that AI does play a part in the future of wealth management. I, I really think that it's a, just like robos are now playing a part as a tool within the, the toolbox of, of financial advisors, I think AI will eventually in the future play a part on that side. So with AI behind us, right, where's your background? How did you get into this space? I mean, what's led you to you know now having a podcast, now having 500 plus families that you're managing? What has been your journey to get here? My journey to get here. You, actually, I've, I got stuck on AI really quick. So if I can just say two things. I'm part of a little men's group, book club, barbecue club, whatever whatever it's turned into over the last 10 years. We were talking about how generally prices have come down in a lot of ways. Not like deflation, but like flights are pretty much the same cost as 25 years ago. And like a lot of food is really the same price. And they were talking about how through technology, companies have managed to take a lot of their responsibility and put it on the consumer. So like, if you're going to fly, you book your flight, you get your boarding pass, you're in charge of your boarding pass, you're in charge of picking your seat. I mean, 25 years ago, there was a travel agent, you know, and they print you off a pass or like Chipotle, one of my all-time favorite places to eat. You get in line in Chipotle, you don't have a waitress. So they've kind of eliminated a lot of these little jobs and put them on you, the consumer. And I think like Calendly is kind of like an example of that. It's like, you want to meet with me? Okay, here's my schedule. You book yourself an appointment. It's one more way that people, in this case, the financial advisor industry, is putting more work on the consumer to save money. If I don't have to pay an admin to set that appointment, and I'm sorry for all of those who use a Calendly, I personally don't like it because it's a way, it's a way to tell your customer you do the work. And it's so it's got its place, especially like if you're meeting with wholesalers or you're meeting with interviews or interns. But I always, I still think of this as a, a white glove industry. So like one of our phrases at Denver Wealth Management has always been Ritz-Carlton service with FedEx efficiency. We did Calendly for a while. So that's why I'm very familiar with it. <laughs> and it kind of, for our clients, it was like, oh, what Zach? Now 
I pay you 50 grand a year, but I have to set my own appointment. No, man, have Caitlin, have Caitlin call. So that's where AI, if AI can find a way to actually not put upon the consumer, the responsibility, that's going to change the whole world because now all of a sudden me, the consumer, I don't have to do all the, the middleman work of these big companies. But I think that that's where AI can help, right? AI doesn't necessarily always have to be going to the outside user, right? Or outside client. It could stay and help the internal efficiencies of the firm. And what I mean by that is that, you know, think about all the data that we have on our clients. We know more about our clients. We know more about their their worries, their concerns, their joys, what makes them tick. We know, we always know sometimes if they're going to get divorced before they even know they're going to get divorced, right? We we know (laughs) all of the, like they tell us everything. Yet our service, even though we are white glove service, which I agree 100% with you on, we still do not do as much proactive stuff as some of the other services out there that they engage with every day, like Facebook and Netflix, et cetera. Mm. They don't have all the information that we have, but they're able to provide them movies of the genres that they like or people that are like them because they're aggregating that all. Think about what AI can do for us as an industry. If we can finally find a way to capture that data, standardize that data from all of these different sources to allow Caitlin to know what trip they just went on because the AI is feeding that into her and that they just got back from the trip. So they're going to have a few minutes of time as opposed to calling them when they're on the trip. And she's able to talk to them about the trip because there's pictures there and that AI is bringing it all together. And you're able to talk to them about the kids. And now that's making that relationship even more elevated and also helping Caitlin plan out her schedule. So she's not spending so much time having to call clients, leave messages and then wait for them to call back. She's actually able to predict when they're going to be available. So when she calls, they pick up the phone, they get the meeting scheduled and it's amazing service. And AI and all this data about when they're worried and their sentiment and emails, that's where really where an exciting aspect of it can come to help our industry move forward, in my opinion. No, I agree. And, and you, you're just touching on customer service, which, you know, in that situation, you know, that's obviously very important, but the real goldmine is before someone hires a financial advisor, like what steps are they taking online or, you know, in general that prompts them to hire a financial advisor? And that would actually be an incredibly valuable tool if you could put all that together. Well, also how to predict when someone in your book of business is, is about to email you and you can email them before they email you, right? Because of their, their right. issues or that they may be leaving you or that they may be about to retire and have another job or they have another you know, flow of money coming in. All of those types of things are really powerful. And you know, I, I think to your point, and this kind of taps on the AI aspect of why I don't think the advisor is ever going away. And it goes to your point when you talked about, this is the time when I make my money, when I keep you from selling. You know, we right. did a study just of a recent time period, and I call it the emotional roller coaster. I'm sure you're familiar with it. If you've seen those graphs of the emotional roller coaster where everybody's like, all right, the market's going up, and then like, all right, now's the time to buy when it's at the peak. And then yep. when it's going down, and then it goes up again, like, look, oh gosh, look at that thing I bought then. And then it goes down, they sell at the bottom. So we put that on the S&P 500 from January of 2020 through June of 2021. And so we did it through the pandemic, just a short period of time, and we mapped it out. And then you have two different scenarios of someone investing $100,000 in each scenario. One person rides the roller coaster all the way through June. The other one follows the roller coaster to a T, buys in and then sells at the bottom and then buys back in. And it was like a $40,000 difference in just an 18 month period, just based on those types of people. And so if an advisor can help someone understand why they need to hold when things are so bleak and they can make it through, that is the value of an advisor right there. It's like plain and simple, the value that an advisor provides in that one period of time. 
Have, have you ever heard the, since you're into parables, I'm glad you wrote a parable because the only parable book out there is the um, richest man in Babylon. Have you heard the, the story of Bob, the world's worst investor? No, but I want to hear it. I read the whole thing like I was reading to my children for a podcast and it was actually pretty well received. But basically it looks at the math of Bob. So Bob starts in like 1975 and ends in 2015. And he, he only invests at market peaks. So if the market's at the very top, he puts all his money in and then he stockpiles cash until the market peaks again. So he's only like investing in like 1975, then 1980, and at like the top of the dot-com bubble and the top of the financial crisis. And it's, it's like the absolute worst you could possibly invest with the exception of you never get to sell. And the crazy thing about Bob is Bob puts in like $100,000 and he ends up retiring with, I, I can't remember the exact number, but like one and a half million. And if, if he would a dollar cost average, of course, he would have four and a half million. But the fact that he never sold, even if he's the absolute worst timer ever, he still you know ends up making like a 7% annual return. And I, I always remind clients of that. Like just if you just never sell, you can mess up pretty much everything else. Just don't freaking sell. Yeah. And um yeah. So we I, just I can't did, we just did a client webinar on that and we did, there's a study uh, that, that we put together on perfection versus uh, participation. And it's that whole thing. We looked at the dot-com bubble. If you invested at the peak and you've invested perfect timing and then the great recession and then the pandemic and showed where you would be. And even the worst timing, I mean, you still made a great return. You still made yeah. a great return. Just hold on to it. Right. Just hold on. And I, I think that that's the reason why I just don't see a computer being able to have that conversation with people, right? I just don't see them having the ability to to help people get out. And I think you see that with the robos right now. You know, people get frightened and sell. The access to trading, and I just wrote about this too, is the meme stocks and all this type of stuff. People just buy and sell based on headlines, and that's not investing. And it's hard to be an investor because you have to weather some major turns in the market and the economy and the world as well that are scary and frightening. All right. Now we haven't, we've talked a lot about AI, which I love. I could talk about AI for about 10 hours, 15 hours easily, but I want to know what's your background. I think we should have started yeah. with that, but we'll start I've, with it now 30 minutes in, which I love because that this podcast can go any which way. <laughs> well, I, I probably the least conventional background of ever, any financial advisor you'll meet. I grew up, I'm from North Dakota. I'm one of seven kids. My mom stayed at home with seven kids. My dad was a truck driver. So as, as you can imagine, that is not a recipe for financial success. So we were like the poor family in our little North Dakota town. And I had a paper route and had to get up every day at 530 starting in like fourth grade, do my paper route and then go to school. And I was just like, we were, I was tired and we were broke. And I was like, damn it, this, this sucks. Cause you know, it's, it's your, your social standing is so obvious to you when you're like a little kid in a small town and it's not only obvious to you, it's obvious to every, like the other kids in class, like, Hey, why does Zach only wear like torn up clothes? So I just kind of became preoccupied, not in like a greedy way, but preoccupied in a, in a money way is like, why does everybody seem to have a lot of money? And our family doesn't have a lot of money. This sucks. And you know, I, I didn't like become Warren Buffett and get directly on the path of becoming some billionaire. No, I just, I just kind of like, it was always in the back of my mind. And when I was in high school, I, I used to go to the library just because there wasn't that much to do in our, you know, North Dakota. I don't know if you've been there. Never. It's flat. <laughs> it's flat and it's a field. It's a, a soybean field or sugar beet field. There's not like activities, you know, like you're on your baseball team, but you only pay baseball so many hours a day. 
So we used to just go to the library. Like, all right, it's summer. It's two, it's a hundred degrees out. Let's just go to the library. It's free. And I found the Motley Fool books. And this was in like 97, 98. You know, Motley Fool, if you're familiar, they do a great job of like getting you emotionally pumped up. And I would just get pumped up like, oh my God, I can take a hundred dollars. You know, at that point I was working at McDonald's. So I can take a hundred dollars and in 10 years, it's going to be 10,000. And then I would just fantasize like if someone gave me 10,000, what would I do with that money? Oh my God, I'd be a king. So then I, you know, from there I started going home at lunch hour and in high school and watching CNBC. And then, you know, I just, I started learning and learning about investing, but for some reason it never really like clicked for me that you have to be good with your cash flow to like be a good investor. Because if you're always paying off your debt and buying stupid crap, you don't really have the money to invest. So fast forward like 10 years, I graduated from college. I went to CU Denver. I, I opened a, a t-shirt printing shop. I was, I remember this so vividly. I can even tell you the in, in intersection I was at. I was at Kentucky and Colorado in Denver and Cherry Creek. And I was just so sick of listening to like political radio because when you print t-shirts all day, you just have tons of free time to listen to the radio. So I just started flipping around the channels and I got, I heard this guy on the radio and it was Dave Ramsey. I later found out and he was yelling at a caller, just being like a real jerk. And he was like, you're an idiot. You've got a car loan, a student loan, a line of credit, a mortgage, a second mortgage, a credit card. And I was like, holy shit, I have all those things, you know, like pardon the language. (laughs) And um, I kind of went down this Dave Ramsey rabbit hole as a business owner. I eventually found myself in the office of Waddell and Reed back when they existed uh, opening a Roth IRA. And I, you know, I kind of made it my mission in that meeting to prove to that guy how much I knew about investing. And he just turned it around on me and recruited me into the financial advisor field. That was like 2007 when that conversation happened. So yeah, so that's kind of how I became a financial advisor. And then, you know, I worked at Waddell and Reed for three or four years and, you know, they're a proprietary shop. They only wanted to sell their particular funds. They really pushed a lot of like permanent life insurance and everybody got an annuity and you just knew right away you weren't not right away. It took a few years to figure out that there's a lot better options out there. So yeah, then in 2011, my business partner and I, he was another rep at Waddell and Reed. We went independent and started Denver Wealth Management in 2011. So we're about nine and a half years in of being the independent RIA. That's an amazing story. One of the best, one of the coolest things about how we do this podcast is to hear everybody's story. And it's such a unique and differentiated you know, path to, to getting to helping families and uh, helping them reach their financial goals. And, you know, I think in that journey, you talk about your past, right? And your, your desire just to, the kind of the thinking and wondering about why other people have money. I mean, how has that impacted how you help families, right? Now in your role of helping families build wealth, you are always looking at like, why is it us that doesn't have money and our other families do? Do you take any of those lessons or those thoughts or those things that you learned when you were young and going through that passion to to help with families and relate to them now? Man, the biggest thing for me is like, it may be counterintuitive, but like when I started at Waddell and Reed, there was very much like, let's say there's 10 advisors, like 10 new advisors in the office. There there was definitely a culture of like, and and I'm glad Waddell and Reed's out of business. So no one can like come back (laughs) and come after me for like libel. Cause I went to wanted to say this like two years ago, but there was definitely a culture of like, you need to maximize the commission on every client that walks in the door. They both need permanent life policies. You know, all their IRAs go into an annuity. They, you know, they need term policies. They like, it was just like you, you milk every client for the maximum commission. 
And actually my first year, my first big account in 2008, I had like a million dollar account and, um, Waddell and Reed, they just, they messed up a lot of stuff, but they actually double charged him an A share commission, but they double charged it right as the market was like rebounding crazy. So we put in like a million or it was like, it was like a little less than a million. So it wasn't like wave loaded, which happens at some point. Yeah. And they double charged, but the market rebounded so quick that the client never knew the client wouldn't have known anyway, just because the client didn't know. And I went, I saw, and I went to my boss and I said, Hey, I got paid double on this. Like, who do we need to call? And he was like, Oh my God, don't call anybody. This is awesome. We get double the commission, double the credit. Dude, and I was so broke. Like, <laughs> and it was like $10,000. And that was all the money in the world to me. And I, it took me like, I had to sit down for like a minute and think like, dude, this is like life-changing money. If I get double my commission. And then like after one minute, I was like, dude, I got into this industry because yeah, yes, I want to be financially secure for myself. But if I start out with my first client, like not 100% acting in their best interest all the time, what a, I don't know what to say. I don't know the right word without swearing. What a jerk I am. <laughs> but what I learned from hanging out with a lot of these other financial advisors is they just kept that mindset of like, hey, I'm just going to squeeze these clients for fees and commissions and a $5,000 plan and a 2% annual fee. And, a, and I just like, no, nah, man, I'm, I'm in this industry to help. I'm not in this industry to hurt. And I think once clients start to pick up on that, like Zach helped me pay off my mortgage. And when people pay off their mortgages, we buy them like those Magnum bottles of champagne, those huge Love ones. It. And that takes money out of our AUM, right? Because we sent the money to pay off a mortgage. As soon as you get that reputation out there that, yeah, Denver Wealth Management, these guys care and they help and they do these, they go the extra mile, even if it costs them money that reputation is priceless. And that I learned all that kind of the hard way watching these other advisors. Sure. They might make a hundred grand in their first year, but they didn't have a second year because their reputation was so bad. There's not enough people in Denver to keep milking that many clients for those huge fees. The good reputation will win that $5,000 over tenfold easily, right? Yeah. With, without that. And I, I think that that's such an interesting perspective. And I, I think that that is a, an awesome trend that's happened in our industry that with the, the rise of RAs and the rise of independent advisors, there's more focus on that, right? On creating good relationships and doing the right thing. And we just are, we are slowly chipping away at that old stigma that has been around for so long that hurt this industry. And I think we're, we're finally getting the right people in the right seats to do the right things for the clients and clients are starting to see that as well. And, and in your mind, I'm always interested in this question. You, you scrapped and clawed and put in so much time, right? Doing a paper route. And I don't know if anybody that in our generation that was doing that at five 30 in the morning necessarily, do you find yourself better at telling others how to handle and manage their money or are you better at handling your own money? From that standpoint, I always think it's an interesting question for an advisor because I've seen it that advi some advisors are really good at telling others how to you know manage and financially plan, but then they look at themselves and they're they're terrible at it. That's, <laughs> That's yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna indict myself with that question. I you know I I was super serious about paying off my debt. I was super serious about getting like well on the path to financial independence for myself, and I was kind of like. A, like I did a thing where I was trying to spend a hundred dollars a week on the groceries for a family of five and a dog. And, and you can imagine how much my wife loved that. <laughs> so I was really frugal for a lot of years, but I was only frugal until I got to the point that kind of like that tipping, you know, the tipping point you get to. And then I got to the point where I was like, you know what? I'm not going to retire anytime soon. I love this industry. I'm at the, what do they call it? The coast fire. Like 
you don't have to save any more money and retirement is you're, you're, you're good. And then I became definitely more like, you know what? I'm not going to get up at 3 a.m. to get the cheapest flight anymore. And I'm not going <laughs> to, I'm not going to sit in the middle seat because it saves me 39 bucks anymore. So I got to the point where I definitely am more willing to buy nicer things. And actually on my Twitter account, that's actually my little Twitter following is kind of like started happening when I started talking some crap about budgets. And I, I try and remind people like, well, I was a budgeter until I paid off all my debt and started saving enough for retirement. But once you get to that point, like, yeah, then, then the point is to enjoy life. So yeah, I'm not, I'm not a particularly frugal guy, but I definitely do my savings first. And then I spend somewhat, not lavishly, but enjoying life. So I love it. I, I, <laughs> I can, I can agree with that. I find myself spending money on certain things that I probably would tell my clients not to spend money on, but to your point, right? I've got my debt in control or, or managed or out of it. And so now it's just a matter of enjoying the money. And I also do tell my clients a lot to go and spend more money. Some of them don't spend enough. And I say, yeah, go figure out how to spend more money. But I want to wrap this up because you've been generous with your time and I want to appreciate that and respect that. So I've read about you. I did some research and I read that you're a big board game guy, that you're, you, you enjoy a good board game. And I can respect that. I can respect that. So I need to know what game you dominate. And then I want to know what game you get dominated in. That's what I want to know. You know, I used to have a reputation uh, up until July, yeah, July of this year. I was pretty much undefeated at Monopoly for like a decade. I just could crush just because of superior negotiating skills and the willingness to uh, keep a game going for nine hours. <laughs> like I, I was just un, undefeatable at Monopoly. And actually I kind of lost my edge this July where I, we played like 12 games in a week and I only won like three, which was like an all-time low. But I'm, I'm going to say that was a temporary, a temporary lull and I'm going to take Monopoly as like my all-time best. All right. My, I like my, that. My, I mean, and you to, you to go nine hours for Monopoly. I mean, I give you credit. I would bail out at like four. I'd just be like, I'm done. You can have my money. You can have my houses. I'm out. And you'd win. Yeah. <laughs> that's like the that's like the endurance athlete part of me. It's like I will never quit. Like you, ha I will go slow. I will I will make you pay every dollar. <laughs> so Monopoly has has been historically my best game. And you know, Settlers of Catan. I don't know if you're familiar with that. That's got a pretty cult following now. I feel like I should be really good at that, but I just can I just don't win that game. I, my, my, the little men's group I mentioned, we play that game like every couple months and I just can't, I I've won like twice in seven years of playing that game, but that's one I'd like to get better at. You can actually, there's like, there's like settlers of Catan training sites. Like there's monopoly training sites. If you really want to dedicate yourself to it, I'm not quite that serious about it. I love it. I love it. I thought that was just a fun factoid we got to get into. And so I want to wrap this up. I'm a big Simon Sinek guy. I, oh, I, yeah. I appreciate what he says and how he talks and, and his passion. And I'm a big believer in his Start With Why book and understand your why. And I'm always interested to understand you know, what drives someone to do what they're doing, right? There's a lot of grind that goes into building a company. There's a lot of ups and downs that it takes. And as a financial advisor, wealth manager, you hear a lot of complaining and issues and you have to bear that of others and your own. And so I'm always interested, what is your why for what you do day in and day out for others? Yeah, I got three and I kind of, it's like my mantra. I, I repeat it to myself every day, just as a reminder is number one, want to be the best dad and, and father and family man that I can possibly be. And part of that is, is managing time. Well, number two is I want to be part of the best financial advisor team in the world to, to be more specific it's because I want to help people that, for example, my family never had growing up. So 
the way I say it to myself is I want to be part of the best financial advisor team in the world. But the, the why behind that is to just help all these people who would otherwise be getting rep, ripped off by unscrupulous advisors. Or really, you know, in Colorado, it seems like there's just not enough advisors to go around. And number three, the way I say it to myself is have a badass adventure along the way. So if that's going running the Boston Marathon or going to New York for an award ceremony or trying to talk people into playing Monopoly with real money, which no one's ever <laughs> taken me up on, but I'm going to do it one day. Just trying to do, trying to enjoy life, you know, because if you're a successful advisor, you definitely get to do stuff that not everybody gets the chance to do. So I just want to make sure I get a chance to take advantage of that. So those, those are my three things. That's my why. And that's why I keep grinding in the industry, even though, you know, we've obviously hit some level of success. I love that. I love that. Zachary, thanks so much for joining us. And I, I think that our listeners can relate to you and, and want to probably follow you and continue to stay in touch. What's the best way for them to stay in touch with you and follow you and continue to hear all the good things you have to say and that you're doing? Yeah. The, the most active community that I'm involved in is definitely Twitter. It's at Zachary Bauk. And from there, you can find our podcast, which is called the Mind of a Millionaire podcast, which we've done over a hundred episodes of and continue to do and have a lot of fun doing it. So yeah. And Matt, I wanted to say thank you for having me on and I'm looking forward to meeting you in person in New York here. Thanks for tuning into this week's episode of Bridging the Gap. Don't forget to give us a rating and let us know what you think. This information is provided to you as a resource for informational purposes only and is not to be viewed as investment advice or recommendations. Investing involves risk, including the possible loss of principal. There is no guarantee offered that investment return, yield, or performance will be achieved. There will be periods of performance fluctuations, including periods of negative returns and periods where dividends will not be paid. Past performance is not indicative of future results when considering any investment vehicle. This information is being presented without consideration of the investment objectives, risk tolerance, or financial circumstances of any specific investor and might not be suitable for all investors. This information is not intended to and should not form a primary basis for any investment decision that you may make. Always consult your own legal, tax, or investment advisor before making any investment, tax, estate, or financial planning considerations or decisions. Investment decisions should not be made solely based on information contained in this podcast. The information contained in this podcast is strictly an opinion and for informational purposes only and is not known whether the strategies will be successful. There are many aspects and criteria that must be examined and considered before investing.